0: Geeks, Seriously Buddhist, Seriously Geeky. Episode 86, How Did Descartes Die? Join us this
1: week as we speak with Dr. Peter Grossenbacher, Director of the Consciousness Laboratory at Naropa University, on the difference between Eastern and Western modes of inquiry, sensory awareness practice, and of the importance of contemplative education. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate.
0: This is getting into a further question that I had for you about the relationship between the Western tradition as a whole and the Eastern traditions as a whole. And it's hard to generalize because there's so many different schools and streams of thought and practice in each of those. But just in general, I mean, what you're describing as common to both sort of answers that question that I had, which was, how do these things relate and how do they contribute to one another?
1: Well, I think the emphasis on the empirical that is also in both contemplative and scientific traditions means observing experience. And so if the West and science offer new methods for making observations, then that's great. That's very helpful. That opens up new domains of study that adds to our database, that adds to our universe that's observable. And so the observable universe whether it's within a person or without, doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. In fact, that distinction, as contemplatives often assert, is dubious at best, Mm. that the distinction between self and other is a conceptual distinction that can be useful in relative doings, but that if we, again, solidify it over much, if we get caught up in crystallize one's self-concept into a rock that we expect to stay solid and that we then stand on. We get dizzy and fall when the rock crumbles. Mm-hmm. So I hate when that happens. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: It seems like when I, when I think about the Western tradition, when I think about many of the great philosophers, not all of them for sure, but in particular, like the Descartes, uh, you know, Meditations. He was he was he was empirically investigating even his subjective experience and his beliefs and things like that. But he could couldn't quite let go of the assumption that he was a thinking thing. He was the thinker. He was the mind, basically. And I'm wondering if that is a difference that I see generally in the Eastern traditions is that assumption, that core assumption, is often challenged in a really powerful way, whereas in the West, like. It doesn't seem to get challenged as much, maybe in certain schools of Christian contemplatives or of Neoplatonic folks. that That is challenged, but not as a a widespread type of practice, whereas in the Buddhist tradition, the Hindu tradition, very much those kind of assumptions are are questioned empirically.
1: Yeah. Rene Descartes, he's the one who said, Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Do you know how Descartes died? No. Well, he was having coffee at a cafe, and the the server came along and said, would you like a refill? And he said, I think not. Poof.
0: He disappeared. (laughs) I did not know that.
1: I think that's probably documented somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot has to do with the field one makes observations in. So often, in the West anyway, we've not, as a culture, gained much comfort in making formal, precise, scientific observations outside the range of conceptual understanding. And for anyone who has been given practice instruction or lucked on to making observation of non-conceptual experience, then as soon as that door opens, as soon as there's a crack, then it's pretty hard to go back to assuming that everything is conceptually knowable. So culturally, it's very interesting that, loosely speaking, in the East, there is a widespread sensitivity, appreciation, direct experience of non-conceptuality. And it's a delight to teach courses like Perception in which students are very easily led to make such observations on their own in the realm of sensory experience, where we often have a conceptual overlay. We give ourselves this executive summary. There's a bit of a gloss on our experience where we say, okay, yeah, I just walked into the room and sat down, which covers over a host of individual discrete micro sensations, of air on skin, of weight on ball of foot, of sound of creaking floor, etc., etc., etc. And so slowing down the mind and noticing more of the details of lived experience is an approach that's available to each of us in any moment.
0: And but it seems to be more tied to the Eastern tra- spiritual tradition.
1: I see that as a cultural artifact, but certainly true mm. today in this world. Right. But going forward, I don't want to get hung up about that as an educator.
0: Right.: right. Yeah, it seems pretty obvious that you're you really are trying to take the best of both worlds and create some sort of it sounds like you're trying to create some sort of practice as well that's that's unique. Is that true? Are, well, you, are you trying to create a methodology that's... Are you trying to become a guru there, Dr. Krasenbacher? <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we have, over the years, developed this thing we call sensory awareness practice in the perception course. And I see that more as a trick than as any new technique. Students in the class ask, oh, is this meditation or is this not different from meditation? And I never give a straight answer. My point is to not make it easy for them to slot this activity that we're doing into a conceptual classification that they can then discard and no longer concern themselves with. Right. They've got it figured out. Right. So my point is to avoid that and to ever and again find any variety of ways to invite each of us to slow down and notice and not get caught up in concept and though there are other realms such as emotion and so on we're focusing on something that's for many people readily accessible which is the realm of sensory experience bodily sensations particular smells tastes in different parts of your mouth any and all visual experience auditory experience, be it sounds that others might hear or auditory images that you might have of favorite songs or familiar voices, and really noticing the particularities of the raw experience. There's so much that when we zoom in can fill our awareness that it can actually facilitate the leaving off from conceptual thinking because there's hardly any room for it.
0: Would you be willing to guide us in a couple minutes of sensory awareness practice? Oh, sure. I think that'd be a neat thing, both for us and our listeners, to get a taste of what you do if you'd be interested.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Okay, cool.
1: So, notice your body. You're welcome to either remain in your current posture or to adjust it so as to be more comfortable. If you're driving a car or bicycle or walking down a sidewalk while listening to this, you might want to pull over or take steps appropriately to safeguard your physical person. Not that we're in any way interested in leaving reality. Far from it. We're just interested taking notice of certain parts of our actual experience. Breathing. Feeling what it's like to have breath moving. It's fine for eyes to be open or shut or anywhere in between. For starters, it's usually simpler to stay relatively still, if that works for you. Feel your body. If you notice your mind trailing away in thought, simply come back to your sensations in your body and in your hearing. No need to label or figure out what it is you're hearing. Just notice particular loudness, pitch, pattern. Whatever you hear, let it continue as it is in the field of your hearing. Still feeling your body and hearing, there's room in your awareness for whatever visual experience is occurring, whether images with eyes closed or whatever shapes appear before your eyes, a sense of spaciousness around all of this. Please know that this experience is always available to you throughout this life. Your senses 24-7 make this available to simply rest and steep, even quietly sensualize in all this. Breathing. Feeling your body. Aware of your surroundings. Sensory awareness never stops, often it's a bit in the background as it merges with the rest of your daily life. Okay.
0: Great, thank you. Cool. So, it's interesting I, when I took your class in perception, we you'd guide us through these uh, sensory awareness practice, and I f- I actually find that it's really powerful, in part just because of the language that you use. I find certain things that I grew up hearing, like loudness and pitch, that I just even though I've done a lot of practice in the Buddhist tradition, it's that the language is slightly different, you know, and, and sometimes some of the languaging that you'd use in this sensory awareness practice, even though it's that they're very similar types of, of using the mind to observe reality, uh, like the, the language would just shift things for me in a way that it seemed more palpable. And so I don't know if, if that's anyone else's experience, but uh, I think that, yes, it seems personally that there's something valuable in that using language that's more common and precise in a way, like loudness and pitch and tone. So I just wanted to comment on that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we've only ever used this practice as learning experiential activities in the context of the perception course. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to think about whether it could be useful to make them more widely available. It's certainly not a orchestrated path or mm-hmm. program of development it's nothing right. like that to my knowledge it's really just a loose collection of spontaneously generated exercises that invite awareness of lived sensory experience without emphasizing conceptual interpretation
0: mhm so it's one one final question we had for you is that one of your interests is contemplative education, as I understand it. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how contemplative education is maybe different from typical education, and why that approach would be valuable in the sphere of, of learning.
1: We're very fortunate here at Naropa University, where contemplative education isn't hidden away in one course, or carried by one maverick teacher, or even pocketed into a particular program of study. At Naropa, and I think still to this day somewhat uniquely, the entire graduate and undergraduate education is permeated by contemplative view and practice. So just as there's each individual person having a personal worldview, so too groups and organizations and institutions have to one degree or another some shared conceptual understanding or a view and Naropa has a view that in my understanding pays particular attention to the non-conceptual in addition to the conceptual and in fact are interested in their interpenetration Mm -hmm. so I think that contemplative education starts with each individual person, all the learners, including the teachers. And so if one or more people in a learning group have training and practice in one or more contemplative traditions, then that's a larger space in which the teaching and learning can occur. So. Rather than just trusting to luck and hoping that, well, since many of us are meditators, you know, good things will happen, Mm -hmm. contemplative education can more systematically utilize this opportunity by orchestrating learning and development in a conjoint conceptual and non-conceptual manner. Uh, Let me give you an example. So, in a purely conceptual approach to learning, the idea of connecting the dots, of having a fully explicated set of relationships to get from the beginning to the end is par for the course. That's one standard approach. Whereas in contemplative education, purposefully, in many occasions... The instructor will refrain from connecting all the dots, but rather present enough of the dotting so that students get the span of the trajectory from the beginning to the end, but may persist in some conceptual gaps within that understanding, which also can invite the opportunity for discovery for themselves to connect those dots, as well as to trust in the larger space of connectedness within which this trajectory is delineated so that not all dots have to at all times always be connected in a purely conceptual way. Now, that was a rather abstract example that may leave some listeners cold. Uh, So be it. I'm not going to connect those dots. (laughs) (laughs) I think
0: I am All out of questions, and after you led the sensory awareness practice, I'm all out of conceptions, too. (laughs) So I wanted to thank you again for joining us today and uh, discussing what you do with the Consciousness Lab and your work at Naropa.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure. And for anyone who's interested, please visit the Consciousness Lab website where there are lots of resources available. And that's www.naropa.edu slash consciousness.
0: Okay, great, and we can put the link too on our site. Oh, great! Yeah, great. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'm certainly open to being contacted by anyone who's interested.
0: Great. We we can also put your email address on the uh, the link, the sidebar of this episode in case anyone's interested. Great.